Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're thrilled to talk to Anne Heffernan about her new book, Limpopo's Legacy, Student Politics and Democracy in South Africa. Anne is currently an assistant professor of history at Durham University in the UK and a research associate of the History Workshop at the University of the Witzvatersvon in Johannesburg, South Africa. Anne Heffernan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amanda. It's great to be here. Anne, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, I now work at Durham University in the UK, and I came here by way of South Africa. But as you can probably tell, your listeners can tell, I'm an American. And I became interested in African history as an undergraduate, largely because I had a really great professor who got me interested in the history of Zimbabwe, um, and that was Tim Skarnecchia, so shout out to Tim, who's fantastic. Um, And as an undergraduate, I wanted to study abroad and wanted to go to Zimbabwe because of Tim's influence, but when it came time to actually arrange a sort of place with the university, my university in the U.S. said that I absolutely couldn't go to Zimbabwe. Um, To be fair, things were happening with the currency. It looked like the university might not stay open. So instead, they sent me to the University of Cape Town, and that's how I became interested in South Africa. Um, And then that interest and connection to South Africa stayed with me as a graduate student. I went on to do a master's degree on South African history. Then I left academia for a while and did some other things. And when I came back to do my PhD, the thing that really was driving me to do it was this desire to continue writing about South African history and specifically about the history of Limpopo, um, the province that this book is about. So that's really kind of the, my trajectory to here. Okay, wonderful. And can you tell us a bit more about um, why you decided to write Limpopo's Legacy? Yeah. um, So as I mentioned, I had a few years out between doing my master's degree and doing my PhD. And when I came back to graduate study, it was in the UK. And um, I was working with Professor William Baynard, who's a fantastic South African historian. And he said to me, kind of in one of our very first meetings when I arrived, you know, what are you thinking about writing about? And the one thing that I knew that I wanted to do was to write about the history of Limpopo. And Limpopo, Mm -hmm. for anybody who isn't familiar with it, is um, South Africa's northern, northeasternmost province. Um, It borders Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Mozambique. Um, it's predominantly rural, so it's to the north of the kind of urban conglomeration around Johannesburg and Pretoria. 
And I had spent time there as a master's student um, writing my master's dissertation on the area of Limpopo that is Venda. Um, And there's a small, now growing, I think, historiography on Limpopo, but certainly at the time, there were kind of one or two key texts about the province and then not very much else about its history. There was more anthropological work that had been done on it. And I just thought that was a real gap in the literature on South Africa. Um, A lot of which, particularly on the anti-apartheid struggle, is centered on urban areas, on the kind of role of cities in leading the struggle. And I was interested in what sort of rural stories from the periphery and places like Limpopo had to tell us about that history and how they could modify maybe some of the conclusions that leads us to. Okay, wonderful. Um, Well, let's get into the book. Um, What I'd like to begin with is student politics in the 1960s, Black consciousness, and the significance of the University of the North at Turf Lope, um, which is, you know, which is in the region that you chose to focus on. Um, and within that, how would you define black consciousness? Um, in the U.S. context, uh, sometimes we tend to think of black power, but what is black consciousness and where did it come from? Yeah. How do you define black consciousness is a great and really important question because it's so foundational for so many of the student movements that I write about in this book. Um, And black consciousness really is, it's a movement, but it's also a philosophy that emerges from historically black university campuses in South Africa, starting in the late 1960s. Um, And it's basically a response to a multiracial student mobilization against apartheid. There are existing student groups in South Africa at the time, um, the biggest being the National Union of South African Students, or NUSAS, um, which is explicitly a multiracial group by which it meant that it took in um, members of the kind of four different racial categories as the apartheid state defined them, um, whites, blacks, Indians, and coloreds in South African parlance and brought together people from all of those different groups to work towards um, undermining apartheid's constraints on society writ large, but particularly in educational spaces. And Black consciousness emerged when some of the Black members of NUSAS, and most prominently amongst them Steve Biko, began to really critique that space and other spaces like it, other multiracially organized spaces, as fundamentally not being led by the concerns of the Black students who were in them. So even Mm -hmm. though those were the people who were oppressed by apartheid, who were most fundamentally experiencing it as the thing that structured their lives, Um, in a deeply detrimental way, it was, from Biko's perspective, often the white students in those organizations that were driving the agendas. Um, And so he founded, not him alone, but he and 
many others founded an organization called the South African Students Organization, or SASO. And SASO gets founded in late 1968, early 1969, um, as a I mean, as a kind of direct rebuttal to New SAS, as a as an organizational space for Black South African university students to organize around their own agenda, um, to identify what they want to do, how they want to politically organize themselves, and then to do it. And so when we're talking about Black consciousness, I think it's important to be aware that SASO comes first as an organization. Um, and that that's the space that it comes out of. But very quickly within the, um, after the creation of SASO, as it begins to spread across South Africa's Black universities, um, the students who are leading it begin to articulate this philosophy of Black consciousness. And as far as I can tell from the archives, the first time the term Black consciousness actually gets used um, by Biko is, I think, not until 1971. So it's relatively late. Wow. Yeah, I know. I was, I was really surprised by that. Um, but the ideas that underpin it are absolutely there from, I mean, even from the mid-1960s, before SASO exists as an organization. And those ideas are of sort of psychological liberation as being an absolute prerequisite to political liberation. And so needing to carve out a space for not just Black students, but Black people writ large to determine their own destiny and how they're going to address the suppressive regime that they're living under. Um, and it has all sorts of different components to it. Um, it has all sorts of different organizational pieces within SASO, and then other organizations sort of spring up. And so then we have, by the early 1970s, what we talk about as the Black Consciousness Movement, which is the collection of all of the, the different organizations. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm... Not sure if I've answered that about how no, you absolutely. how you define black consciousness, but <laughs> you did. Um, okay. And it see it would seem like um, there are uh, contem contemporaneous discussions happening in the Afro diasporic world that are similar to the ones that are happening in South Africa around Sasso and and, and black consciousness um, through anti colonial discourses as well as through. Um, the internationalization of the U.S. Black Power movement. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, we see these moments where um, uh, they're kind of in in conversation with each other, even if they're not in direct conversation. The ideas are circulating in this moment. Um, yeah, absolutely. Also, yeah, also central to um, to your book is your positioning of Turflope as an important site of student political activity. Can you reflect on the significance of this uh, place, this university, um, as what you call a hothouse for anti-apartheid activists? Yeah. Um, so Turflip, um, and I use the term, the nickname Turflip for the university throughout the book because it formally changes its name several times throughout its history. So just kind of for ease of, of reference. Um, 
But TurfLip is today the University of Limpopo. Um, it begins its life as the University College of the North, and then it changes its name a couple of times within that period of time. And so I mentioned the kind of geography um, the, of Limpopo, the fact that it's rural, uh, that it's relatively isolated from major urban areas. Um, in, in the late 1950s, the apartheid state um, basically embarks on a project to try to, well, in, try to set up what they call homelands or Bantustans, um, which are these kind of quasi-independent self-governing spaces that are ethnically segregated. And they exist all over South Africa. Eventually, there are 10 of them. Um, some of them achieve nominal independence. Um, some of them remain kind of more closely tied to Pretoria, even the ones that are independent. I use the term nominal independence intentionally because they're very much still constrained in what they can do by the fact that their borders are entirely surrounded by South Africa um, and the South African state remains involved in their governance. But within the province of Limpopo, what's now the province of Limpopo, there were three of these Bantustans, Leboa, Venda, and Gazunkulu. And the apartheid state was interested in how they were going to basically set up governing structures in these spaces, um, how they were going to produce an educated elite to be the civil service, to run them, but also to be doctors and nurses and teachers and architects and things, basically to have a kind of fully functioning society. But they were situated in quite out of the way places. Um, and they were these sort of interesting constructs of the state. And so one of the things that they do in the late 1950s is to establish a series of universities around the country that are designed to educate those elites um, and those professionals, ideally to, to run the Bantistans. And Turflup is one of those universities. It's located uh, when it's established in 1959-1960 uh, within the borders of the Leboa Bantustan, but it's unusual in comparison to some of the other um, Black universities that are designed for this reason because it has to deal with several different Bantustans of sort of smaller ethnic groups. Um, so it has to educate a broader span of the population than apartheid architects ideally wanted it to, because the whole kind of underlying premise of apartheid is not just racial segregation, but ethnic segregation. And they, this is why Bantustans are set up for individual ethnic groups. Um, and they're very invested in these kind of ethnic identities. But Turflup has to take in really four different ethnic groups um, covering a broader geographical swath than other universities. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where it comes from in the very early 1960s, this idea of educating 
these these people who will run the Bantustans. But very quickly, really, um, within a decade, the book argues, I argue, that it goes from this ideal of the apartheid state to actually being one of the places, one of the crucibles of resistance to that state. Um, so it becomes this I've, this place where um, I mentioned the South African Students Organization that Biko founds. Sasso is launched at Turflip in 1969. And right out of the gate, it becomes a really strong supporter of that form of student resistance. Um, Black consciousness flourishes on the campus in its first years in the late 1960s and into the 1970s. Um, And so, yeah, so it goes from really being this this space that was purpose-built to support apartheid to being somewhere that hothouses resistance to it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Um, And a part of that... uh... Uh, well, a part of this, and I think one of the most lovely parts about this book is that um, you paint these wonderful snapshots or you take these wonderful snapshots of these fearless student leaders. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who some of the lesser known um, uh, men and women of this, young men and women of this story are, these student actors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. When I say I work on Limpopo, often the thing that I get asked by South Africans is why, which is slightly <laughs> unflattering. <laughs> um, but again, it's a it's a slightly out of the way place. It has a reputation of being a kind of sleepy place. And I think it has a reputation of being a place that not many influential people are from. And so one of the things I try to do in this book is is to really undermine that assumption um, by demonstrating that, in fact, a lot of influential people are from Limpopo. Sometimes um, there are people who are household names who you don't think of as being from Limpopo. So, for instance, the current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, is from Limpopo. Um, He's a student activist, and I chronicle him in the book. But equally, there are a lot of people who are not household names necessarily, certainly beyond South Africa and even in South Africa, but who play really critical roles in this history. Probably the most well-known of the lesser known figures is Ongopotse Tiro. Um, and he was uh, an early Sasso activist um, who was he was a student at Turflip in 1969 when Sasso launched on the campus there. I think he was in his first year, if I remember correctly, um, maybe right at the beginning of his second year. But um, and he goes on to become very involved in student politics. He's a representative of the Student Representative Council, which is like the student governance body on campus. Um, and he actually graduates and then stays on to do a um, like a postgrad teaching certificate because he's interested in education. And in the year that he is finishing that certificate, he gets asked by 
the um, current student representative council to come and speak at the graduation as the invited speaker from on behalf of the students. And so every year there was this tradition that the student body got to invite somebody to speak on their behalf at graduation. And usually those speakers were like pretty not timid, but just apolitical in their interventions. They did not really push the boat out in terms of politics. Um, Certainly in the 1960s and even in the first two years of the 1970s. But when Tiro gets asked to give this speech in 1972, um, he breaks the mold. He throws that tradition out completely of this kind of milk toast, um, you know, self-congratulating approach to graduation. And he just rails against the inequity of the system that they're all being forced to live and study in. And so one of the things that really angers him um, and that he kind of takes issue with in his speech is that the the parents of the graduates um who again if i haven't mentioned it all all of the students at turflip were black um they were constrained specifically by which ethnic group they were from as to which university they could study at certainly all of them were black um and all of these parents of these black graduates were forced to sit at the back of the hall or sometimes to stand outside the hall because there wasn't enough space. And instead, seats at the front were given to white dignitaries um, representing the state, basically, and the Department of Bantu Education. So he really comes out swinging against this system as being fundamentally wrong. But he also, and I think it's really important, and perhaps uh, it was a a not very obvious thing to do at the time, he criticizes it for being deeply hypocritical because the idea of having set up these universities that are specifically and exclusively for Black students is very much sort of part and parcel of the separate but equal ethos that the apartheid state is trying to make work. They're saying, look, we're setting up these wonderful Bantustans where you'll have self-rule, you'll be able to govern yourselves, you'll follow your own ethnic traditions, and we're building you universities so that you can do that. But Tiro says these universities are underfunded. Um, They're staffed not by our own academics, but actually by, um, more often they're staffed by bureaucrats. So you don't even have necessarily people with higher degrees in teaching positions. You have people who come from postings in the apartheid state and are sent to Turflip to teach intro to anthropology, for instance. Um, so, and so he's criticizing the hypocrisy of this whole system um, of saying that it's going to do one thing and then failing to do it over and over again. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it would seem that well, as you as you go on to show, um, 
the kind of like anxieties and the frustration of the students um, uh, ultimately gets articulated um, as uh, protest. So at a time when we see um, Durban emerging as also a hotspot um, of protest, we also very interestingly see Tarflov <laughs> emerging as a spot of um, unrest. Um, and I'm wondering if you could expound upon that and tell us um, about how Tarflov, as you argue, um, the protests there take on a broader regional and national significance and um, also become additive to the expansion of the Black consciousness movement. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so before Tara gives this speech in 1972, basically, y- you don't see Turflop on in the headlines of any South African newspapers. Nobody is worried about what's happening at this university, which is way the hell up north, um, further than anybody's willing to drive. Um, and, but as the book tries to show, there's a lot that is happening there that's kind of fomenting under the surface. When Tara gives this speech, it gives rise to, um, feelings across the country that students on black campuses, because Surflip is not the only segregated black campus, feelings that students are having across the country. And all of a sudden, um, people have this kind of organizational touch point. Um, And because Tiro is an active member of SASO, the South African Students Organization, they're really able to capitalize and mobilize on that. Um, So he gives this speech, the university administration reacts poorly. Um, and they decide to expel Tiro and to expel um, the members of the student government that had invited him to speak. And they think they're being extremely magnanimous by drawing the line there. And that's, that's all they're going to do. They're not going to hold anybody else responsible for this. But actually, this prompts like major protests on campus walkouts of class and and sort of a mass class boycott. So Turflop shuts down in the wake of this expulsion. And then the university doesn't really know what to do. So they wind up actually expelling everyone, which made sense, I guess, at the time, and requiring them all to apply to re-enroll. So they expel everybody, all of the, the entire student body, send them all home. And that's important because Turflip, as I mentioned, has a pretty broad geographical kind of catchment area because you went to Turflip because you were from an ethnic group that had to go to Turflip if you wanted to get a university education, not so much because you thought, gee, this is a great place to be, or there's something there that I want to study. So when they expel everybody, they send everyone back into various different parts of South Africa. Um, and that and the kind of links from to other campuses through SASO really generate a lot of attention to what's happening 
in this out of the way campus way up north. Um, so that's one of the first examples of Turflip being what I call a node in a much bigger national network of student protest and um, and not just a kind of incidental node, a really influential space in which in which changes are happening and they're they're being propagated much more widely. And the next kind of instance of this happens a couple of years later in 1974 when um, Turflip holds a rally to support the coming independence in neighboring Mozambique um, under Frelimo. And so you mentioned Durban, which we might expect to be a much more kind of likely center for political activism and foment um, because it's a big city. Um, there's a lot of sort of mixing and, and cross-fertilization happening there. But in 1974, in September of 1974, there's a plan organized through the Black Consciousness Movement, so SASO and then its kind of um, affiliate organizations, to celebrate this moment where Frelimo is, is gaining control of Mozambique. Mozambique is becoming independent. Um, and there's a plan for these to happen all over the country. But the minister of police basically pre hears about it and preemptively cracks down on the plans for these pro-Ferlimo or Viva Ferlimo rallies. And the only two that go ahead after they're officially banned and made illegal are one in Durban, um, at which is where the Black People's Convention, the sort of um, adult affiliate of the South African Students Organization, is based. And so that makes quite a lot of sense. There are a lot of activists in and around Durban. Um, and so they push ahead there. But the other one that goes ahead is Turflip, um, which is perhaps less expected because none of the other Black universities pursued holding their rallies once they were, they were outlawed. Um, and the reason it happens at Turflip, I think, is um, due to a combination of factors. One of them is that Turflip at the time has really, really strong um, student governance through people who are affiliated to SASO. Um, so there are very close links between what's happening in Durban through the Black People's Convention um, and that realm of Black consciousness politics and what's happening at Turflip based on the role of SASO within student government there. Right. And yeah, it would seem as as sort of these activist energies are fomenting um, in the mid 1970s, um, there's and, and you mentioned you importantly mentioned the diffusion of black consciousness to um, wherever wherever students returned home to um, wherever the places that they called home and they they became these kind of like spreaders of of black consciousness. Um, I would love for you to kind of kind of explain the um 
the the two things that are happening kind of after after all of this uh, protest and activist energy in the mid 1970s. So on the one hand, the def- the, the national diffusion, um, but on the other hand, about kind of what actually happened at Turf Lope um, after the after the 1974 moment and um, the rise of Africanization as a as a thing that sort of compromises other components of the black consciousness struggle. Yeah. So in terms of of the national diffusion, that that's really important. And I think it it begins to happen even before 1974. So if we go back to, to Tiro and his expulsion and the shutdown of campus, we have our first wave of students getting expelled and sent home and bringing these ideas that have been sort of floating around and being developed on campus, bringing those home with them. And then after that sort of period of student protest and expulsion, and then eventually the the university reopens, a lot of students go back, but not everybody can go back. Um, So Tiro and the people who had invited him to speak are still expelled. They're not allowed to return to campus because they've now been kind of identified as political troublemakers. And so they, not all of them, but many of them, Tiro sort of most prominently among them, become teachers and wind up going into the secondary school system in predominantly, although not exclusively, in South African townships. So people have gone from Turflip, from this isolated rural campus, back into homes in villages, some of them in the rural parts of Limpopo, but also into urban townships in places Um, outside places like Johannesburg, Pretoria, um, and sometimes further afield. And some of them become teachers. So I mentioned that Tiro was, at the time that he got expelled, already doing a postgraduate certificate in education. He was training to become a teacher. And you would think that having kind of demonstrated himself to be a um, political firebrand might preclude him from getting hired in a school that was run by the Department of Bantu Education. And it's important to to know here that education in South Africa is racially segregated at every level. Um, And so education for Black South Africans was all controlled under the Department of Bantu Education. That included TERFLIP itself. Um, So whereas for white universities, they had no direct kind of government oversight involved in their administration or their curriculum, for Black universities, that was not the case. Um, And they were beholden to this ministry in the government, just as were primary and secondary or high schools. So it's kind of surprising that Tiro manages to get 
a job after he's become this very public figure. But he does, basically because at this point in the 1960s and, and into the early 1970s, secondary education, high school education, is really expanding in South Africa um, within townships and villages. So they just need teachers. They need teachers more than they need to worry at this particular moment about kind of controlling an ideological message. And so Tiro and many others like him, um, who were expelled in the waves of student protests in 1972, and then this happens again in 1974 after the Viva for Lima rallies, go out into schools and they take with them all of these ideas, this this Black consciousness philosophy that they've been building and refining at university, and they bring it into the school system. Um, and they begin to talk to their students about these ideas. And in the book, I kind of chronicle some of the ways in particular classrooms that that was implemented. Um, and talk to some students who experienced that and how it uh, affected their own kind of political conscientization. So you have this national diffusion of these ideas really moving through people as they go out into other spaces, um, and in this case, particularly educational spaces, bringing these ideas of Black consciousness with them. Um, So that's what happens sort of when beyond Turflip, the the kind of the movement of these ideas. Um, But in the meantime, you've asked what happens at Turflip because Turflip still continues to to go on as a segregated university. Um, By the mid-1970s, it's become much more kind of familiar with its position as uh, basically a political hotspot. Um, so whereas that was, I think, very surprising to the administrators in the late 1960s and early 1970s, by the middle of that decade, this has become pretty normal at Turflip. And so it goes through rounds of shutdowns. Um, students get sent home. They come back. Um, We have this movement of ideas happening every time that occurs. And eventually on campus, there's a real, there's a real consolidation around SASO as an organization and Black consciousness as an ideology, Um, certainly by the middle of the 1970s, earlier, really. Um, And one of the things that those students are calling for in the changes that they want to see at the university itself is for what they call Africanization. And by Africanization, they mean um, bringing in African leadership to the university. In some ways, it goes back to the very critique that that Tiro made in his graduation address of, of Turflip, of it being a university that was ostensibly set up for 
black South Africans, but that didn't actually function for black South Africans, that functioned basically only on behalf of the apartheid state. Um, so one of the key things that the movement for Africanization is looking for is to bring in a black leader. And at the time, the um, the head of TERFLIP, the um, sort of position that would be analogous to the president of the university was the rector. And there had only ever been white rectors at TERFLIP up until the mid-1970s. There had really predominantly only been white senior administrators. There had only been white senior academics. Um, the black staff were almost exclusively in, certainly in the very early years, exclusively in junior roles. And even later on, the sort of capacity to move up within the organization was, was limited. Um, but things by the mid-1970s are really coming to a head. And there's a huge amount of political pressure on the administration to do something because they keep having these waves of protests. They keep having to shut down the university in order to um, address them, to get things back on track and then to reopen. And so um, after the Viva for Lima rally and a, another shutdown of the university, a round of expulsions, and in this case, actually a round of arrests, there's a commission of inquiry that the government sets up just to try to figure out what the heck is going on at TERFLIP and why is it chaos all the time. And one of the suggestions that that commission makes, the government's own commission, is that there has to be better working conditions for Black staff. Um, they are themselves calling for parity of pay, which they don't have. Um, and the commission says you really need to consider putting a black rector in charge of this institution. Um, and so finally, the government does decide to do that in 1976. They almost make the absolutely wrong decision to take the person who headed that commission, um, who was a white judge and who seemed very sympathetic to a lot of these political aims and put him in charge of the university. So they almost <laughs> drag defeat from, from the jaws of a very obvious victory, but the, which is, you know, pretty typical of governments, I guess, and certainly of the apartheid government. But um, the thing that really, uh, well, one of the things that it's fortuitous that they didn't do that then because in the in between them announcing that Turflip was going to have its first black rector and that announcement came in relatively early 1976 um and the appointment of that man who was a man named William Clare um is that the Soweto uprising happened in June of 1976 and so schools, secondary schools, school children in Soweto, outside Johannesburg, marched through the streets complaining 
protesting about the inequity of their educational system um, that was, again, undergone to education. A lot of them had been influenced by those teachers like Tiro, um, who had come into classrooms and brought with them Black consciousness ideas. So, and it it becomes this pivotal national moment um, where all of a sudden people are people who had potentially not been aware of some of the deep oppressions perpetrated by the apartheid state became aware because the the march by these children was brutally repressed by the police um, and that was covered widely in the press. So. When the um, Black Rector comes in, in late 1976, it's a moment that had they managed to stay with a white rector, um, it would have been cataclysmic. Um, It was really important that they did not do that. Right. Um, And you actually, uh, yeah, you you moved into Soweto. which is uh, sort of what I want to get into next. Um, uh, one of the, I think, most powerful things about about this um, about your book is that um, it traces sort of the individual legacies of what an experience with youth activism and youth protest. Yeah, youth protest can do, um, like an early experience with it and kind of like what the legacies of that are for individuals and how they move through the world. And you mentioned this with Tiro, who becomes a, a teacher in Soweto. Um, so I'm wondering if we could think um, about uh, this more broadly, about the Soweto uprisings of 1976, um, the significance of that moment uh, particularly for the Black consciousness movement. Um, what does, yeah, how does it change Black consciousness? And how does it change what, um, like, sort of what student politics looks like and then what youth politics looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh, that's really, really good questions. Um, there's a pretty robust debate in the historiography um, over the ideological influences on the school children of Soweto, that generation of 1976, um, about what were the kind of things that that prompted them to embark on that protest. Um, and a large group argues that Black consciousness is very influential, and I'm certainly in that group. Um, And then there are smaller um, uh, organizations of historians that would suggest that other influences were potentially more important. Um, And I think it's fair to say that for each student who marched in Soweto, there were a range of intersecting causes, as for anybody who embarks on protest. Um, But, and and that's, I think, really important. One of the sort of best explanations I've ever seen of this comes from Sibangele Mkabela, 
who was one of the student leaders of the march in Soweto that day, um, and who actually later went on to marry a student activist from Turflip, um, Ishmael Mkabela. So they're a really interesting family. Um, but she said, you know, look, I was a BC person. Um, Murphy Morobe, for instance, was an ANC person. We all had our own ideological backgrounds and ideological influences, but we organized around these key issues, which were predominantly about um, the implementation of Afrikaans as a teaching medium in classrooms. Um, but what, so, so at the individual level, there are a whole mix of things happening for, for students in Soweto. But what it means for the organizations that kind of surround it is huge on a number of fronts. For Black consciousness, which I would argue was really influential for a lot of students, although not singularly influential, um, actually Soweto prompts a huge government crackdown on student protests and prompts a lot of these young people to have to go into exile, um, to flee this sort of terrible police repression. And the upshot of that, I think really, is that Black consciousness doesn't have the same exile structures that some of the older liberation organizations like the ANC and the PAC already have in place. So when all of these young people who may have been really influenced by Black consciousness have to go abroad, um, sometimes as close as Botswana, sometimes much further away, Nigeria, Europe, America, there aren't structures related to BC that they can neatly fold themselves into. Um, and so post-Sueto, you see a real shift towards some of the ideas espoused by the ANC, I think largely because they were in a position to take in those student activists and to really influence a, a new sort of shift in their thinking. And yeah, and sort of with this shift um, to the ANC, um, while I was reading, I kind of see how you're um, uh, well, you begin a discussion of charterism, um, sort of after after seventy six and into the nineteen eighties. Um, I wonder if you could explain uh, what that is, and uh, specifically how uh, we start seeing politics shift, politics shift more towards the ANC, precisely because of some of the reasons that you mentioned about uh, the way that the Black Consciousness Movement um, went into exile. Um, the way that the government cracked down on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so charterism really quickly is just, just means that a particular group, if you're a charterist or a particular person, means you affiliate to the ideas that are outlined in the Freedom Charter. And the Freedom Charter was a document that was drafted in 1955 um, by a, a set of... Um, kind of related movements, the ANC was one of them, but a, a set of different, what we would call Congress movements. Mm -hmm. And the Freedom Charter is a, is a not a very long document, but it's a longish document and it, and it outlines a number of things. But when we say that an organization is charterist, uh, when I say it in the book, and I think by the 1980s, it really becomes a shorthand for meaning that you affiliate to the ANC and its ideals, and 
probably chiefly among them that you're undertaking a multiracial approach to the anti-apartheid struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in some ways, this takes us back to to New SAS, to those Mm -hmm. early debates that um, sort of brought SASO and Black consciousness forth. Who gets to take the lead in the struggle um, and who gets to be involved in it? Um, So charterism involves a larger range of racial groups represented um, within it. And um, I think, sorry, so you asked about uh, how the how that shift happens to yeah, and how this changes uh, youth activism, what youth activism looks like in the 1980s compared yes. to the 1970s. Yeah. So by so in the very early 1980s, the late 1970s, a new generation of youth activists really basically consciously turns away from black consciousness. They no longer find it as compelling a framework as it had been a decade before. Um, Mm -hmm. And they instead say, actually, a multiracial charterist approach is what we need. We need to be more inclusive. And the logic behind that is that in order to undermine the the segregation that apartheid implements in our lives we have to organize ourselves together um and so a new generation of young people in 1978 79 80 decide to actively disavow black consciousness and to adopt charterism some of that is because as i mentioned the anc has been able to really mobilize in the aftermath of Soweto in a way that it was struggling to do within South Africa in the early 1970s. It had much less traction on campuses like Turflup in the 1970s than it begins to get in the 1980s. And that is very much part of the post-Soweto moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so. Uh... So, yeah, we see that youth are making uh, sort of different choices, as you just mentioned, in the 1980s. And um, and it seems that like a part of this by the time we get to the late 1980s is um, uh, the South African Youth Con- Congress and um, how the South African Youth Congress is able to kind of consolidate the support of so many uh, young people around the nation. Um and I think you draw out really carefully um, kind of uh, the, the I, I don't even know what the best word is to say, but maybe the tra- I don't, transition seems overused, but um, between the South African Youth Congress and the ANC Youth League and how the ANC Youth League um, is kind of like enacting this project of post-apartheid nation building, but like really pulling from the work of the South African Youth Congress. So, um, yeah, I just wonder if you could speak to um, some of that because it brings us up to uh, some of the uh, questions that uh, we have about youth politics today and the ANC in South Africa. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so SACO, the South African Youth Congress, is a kind of really large but also very loose uh, conglomeration of individual youth congresses. And youth congresses emerge in the 1980s across the country. I mean, there are hundreds, thousands of them at the village and school level. Um, and so SACO exists as a kind of umbrella for those. It is a formal organization, but it exists under um, sort of circumstances of being banned right from the get-go. So it doesn't actually have a chance to do very much until the period of unbanning in the early 1990s. And this is really the kind of formal transition away from apartheid. Um, and then what it does is it really begins to, and under the leadership of some key youth leaders, one of whom I talk about a lot is Peter Macaba, who is originally from Limpopo. Um, it really tries to position itself to be the most influential player in what will become the new ANC Youth League. Um, because the ANC has become unbanned, it is looking very likely that it is going to um, come out victorious in the negotiation process. Um, and, and then, in fact, it does, of course, win the elections in 1994. So position in relation to that party is very important for kind of where you'll be in terms of the power structures of the new nation. Um, and I make the argument that Seiko works very hard to actually maintain quite a lot of that autonomy that existed in its um, sort of conglomeration of individual youth congresses within the new ANC Youth League. So the new Youth League that's founded in 1991 um, has a real strain of autonomy from the the mother party in it. Um, and I think I, I make the argument that that's something that has influenced youth politics, certainly youth politics within party structures into the post-apartheid era um, and into the 21st century. Right. And that's something I want to talk about next, actually. So um, in 2016 and 2017, um, we saw students in South Africa, in the U.S., in the U.K. Um, express their desire for a radical decolonizing of their universities and a dismantling of rapacious power structure, r rapacious power structures within their um, respective nations. So I'm wondering how um, uh, that activism, in your mind, was an extension. Um, of these student movements that you lay out, you know, in, in the 19, late 1960s, 1970s, 1980s um, in your book and kind of what messages um, those today's student activists can draw from Limpopo's legacy. Yeah. Um, so I, I was actually writing Limpopo's legacy on a South African campus, the University of the Swatersrand, um, when the movement that became known as Fees Must Fall started there in 2015 and then into 2016. Um, and so it was this kind of extraordinary situation of writing about 
historical student activism while witnessing a new moment of historical student activism. Um, and I opened the book with an anecdote of um, how Fees Must Fall was um, felt at Turflip because Turflip is, is still a university in South Africa. It's now the University of Limpopo um, in 2016. And I think there's a lot to say about the position of Turflip um, in post-apartheid South Africa as opposed to apartheid South Africa. Um, and we could spend a whole another hour on that. And we don't have time to. Um, but I do think that there are real interesting resonances um, around some of the debates on Africanization, um, the position of Black staff within South African universities, where actually Turflip's position as a historically Black, deeply under-resourced institution pushed it well ahead of places like the University of Cape Town, the University of the Witzwatersrand, um, the historically white, better resourced institutions in South Africa, which really were not, it took much longer for them to be pushed to change the racialized nature of their power structures. Um, and so when I look back at those debates on Africanization in the 1970s, I see a lot of interesting resonances to contemporary discussions of decolonization on South African campuses now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the same thing. Um, and it can, I think that uh, what's so exciting about your book is that it can uh, yeah, like show show students, yeah, what what the debates were, and then how things kind of fall apart. Um, the way that the way cohesion isn't always necessary, like perfect ideological cohesion is not always necessary to get something to move or get something to change. And I think on the ground, a lot of times activists get you know get caught up in in a lot of these like interpersonal dynamics about who stands where on what ideology, um, and sometimes that can uh, yeah compromise. Um, the broader picture and, and gains that can be made. Um, but it was tremendously inspiring, even um, as I was a student at the time, a grad student uh, watching what was going on in 2016 in South Africa. I remember being inspired by, by uh, Rhodes, uh, Rhodes Must Fall and then Beats Must Fall later. Um, so, Anne, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to ask um, one more question of you, which is um, how, uh, well, what are you up to right now? Um, are there any interesting things that you are um, working on um, amidst uh, the coronavirus quarantine that we are all under right now? Yeah. Um, well, so the thing, to be honest, that I'm spending most of my time doing right now is trying to master online teaching technology and to get better at using Zoom um, because I am teaching undergraduates at a distance and I have never done that before. And there's a very, very steep learning curve. In terms of my own research, it's actually thrown up a little bit of a roadblock because I have, since Limpopo's Legacy came out last year, I've been thinking about the next big project and, and where I'm going to go with that. And my plan actually is to 
hopefully to do a more sustained um, history of the historically black um, college and university system in South Africa. Um, so I spend a lot of time in Limpopo's legacy talking about TERFLIP, but it's one of five historically black universities in the country. And so I'd like to look more at those in, those places as institutions and how they function and their relationship in particular to the state. Um, and I've got some archives on that, but only a kind of very limited amount. So I guess during quarantine, I need to go through everything I've got and figure out what I can do with it from the comfort of my living room until I can get back out into the field. Yes, indeed. Well, that would be a, a challenging task, but it does sound like a great project. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed it as well. <laughs>